Every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that the person and work of Jesus is most clearly revealed. Um, our sermon text this week is from Galatians 3, 28 through 4, 7. Um, and it'll be preached by our pastor, Paul Ramsey. Before we read, please pray with me. God, we come to you this morning. Um, we just ask you to reveal yourself to us through your word. God, just help us to see you through your word, um, this morning as it reminds us that you have adopted us as sons and daughters through the blood of your son. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Paul. Uh, like Britt said, I am one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to be with you this morning, as it is each Sunday, to gather uh, and sing and pray and hear God's word, sit under God's word together um, as a people, seeking to live our lives more and more in Christ-likeness with each passing day. If you were with us last week, you'll know that last week we wrapped up our series through the book of 1 John with a reading of the letter of 1 John in its, in its entirety. Uh, we had never done that before as a church. And it was truly a wonderful thing, especially coming out of the series where we had uh, looked, zoomed in kind of slowly on each passage in the letter. We then heard it all read with each passage in its context. And I spoke with a number of you who thought that was a wonderful experience. It really was a, uh, wonderful to experience the letter as it probably would have been read and received in most of the churches in the early church uh, for the original hearers. This week, we are shifting gears a little bit. Uh, if you have been with Sojourn for a number of years, you may recall that usually every year in the fall, we engage in a series called Life Together, along with the rest of the Sojourn churches in Houston. Uh, as, and uh, we, we engage in this Life Together series as a way to explore together across all of Sojourn what it means that we're a unified family of churches, or really uh, a multi-congregational church across our city. The content of this year's Life Together series, it's a three-week series, um, and the content is actually several years in the making. As Sojourn has grown and learned and wrestled with questions and the pain points of growing and maturing together, there's several conversations that we saw needed to happen in order to continue to grow into a healthy organization, really, that lasts, Lord willing, for generations. And for one of these conversations a couple of years ago, all of the Sojourn Houston elders began a series of conversations aimed at strengthening our language and our values with the goal of growing in the kind of clarity that provides both unity 
and freedom to innovate as we seek to grow in our ability to engage meaningfully and intentionally with the various different neighborhoods and neighbors around us in the city of Houston. In large part due to the pandemic, uh, sharing with you all the fruit of our labor as pastors across Sojourn Houston has taken a bit longer than initially uh, expected, but this year, our Life Together series, which all of the Sojourn congregations throughout the city are beginning today, we're gonna take these three weeks to cover five key values that we share as a multi-congregational church across our city. Here at Sojourn Heights, most of you know that we've been walking through a very difficult season as leaders and as a church leading up to and coming out of the dismissal of Brandon Barker as one of our pastors. In a time of crisis like this where we're processing, grieving, praying, yearning for renewal and healing and rest, a series like this may seem a bit out of place. I would be lying if I didn't, if I told you that I hadn't thought about pivoting from this series and doing a series through selected Psalms instead. Um, where's Dodds? I think I actually mentioned it to Dodds a few weeks ago. But honestly, after more thought and discussion, I can't think of a better series for us to engage together right now. Times like the one in which we find ourselves even before we get to our plans and our ideas for the future, times like these are exactly when it's important to revisit really simple questions like what are we doing together? Why are we doing it? How are we doing it? And so Sojourn, I'm hopeful that as we jump into this three-week series together alongside the rest of Sojourn Houston, that God would meet us in a really particular and special way, reminding us of who we are and what we're doing together so that as we consider turning towards the season to come as brothers and sisters, we would do so with clarity, unity, and the encouragement of knowing that we're not going this alone. We're linking arms with our brothers and sisters across the city as we seek to engage in what the Apostle Paul refers to as the ministry of reconciliation, bringing the love of God to bear in the world around us as we labor to see neighbors reconciled to God and to one another. And so today, all of us at Sojourn across Houston are beginning this three-week series covering the five core values that we share as a multi-congregational church. And we're going to cover two of those values today, family and local ministry. But before we jump into that, let me explain what we mean by multi-congregational church. In short, Sojourn Houston is one church made up of multiple congregations. There's Sojourn Heights, Sojourn Montrose, Sojourn Galleria, Sojourn Spring Branch, and now Sojourn Oak Forest. We've put our hands in the middle to pursue visible and meaningful unity for a few primary purposes. One, we are not satisfied with merely affiliating with other congregations. We think that the church should be visibly united. We hope that, we, we, we hope that for the entire church in Houston and around the world, and so we are organizing ourselves in line with this vision. Second, we believe that church planting is essential to the Great Commission. It's how the Spirit establishes a lasting kingdom presence in a place. And we can plant new churches more effectively when we pool our resources and work together as churches. And then third, as neighborhood-specific congregations, we have the unique ability to work towards the unification and reconciliation of our highly segregated city by simultaneously pursuing intensely local ministry and citywide unity and oneness, we can do our part to demonstrate a better way forward for the city of Houston. 
And so as I begin this morning by looking at our first two key values, uh, family and local ministry, would you pray with me once more? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning so grateful uh, to be gathered here uh, in a building like this, among people like this, enjoying the fellowship uh, that you have given us with one another by your spirit through the finished work of Christ. And we're also grateful for the fellowship that we have with Christians around the world and across our city, and especially with Sojourn Houston congregations who across our city are talking about these same things and this same passage of scripture. I pray that you would use this scripture and this sermon and these values to encourage us as a church, to bring unity and focus as a church, to lead us and guide us as a church, so that as we yearn for healing and renewal, our eyes would not simply be on us and what we are doing, but would be on those around us who so desperately need to experience and to come to know the love of God, which is for them in Christ. And so I pray that you would use this series to mobilize us, be gentle with us as we walk out of this difficult season, and please guide the way, uh, be the lamp for our steps as we walk into the next season, the season to come. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We, we are all searching for meaning. Throughout human history, one thing has replaced another over and over again as the thing that gives our lives meaning and purpose. It could be fighting in a war for your king and country. It could be ascending to the heights of philosophical prowess. It could be gaining success, accumulating wealth, sending your kids to the top college, having kids in the first place. One thing after another has replaced one thing after another as the thing which gives our lives meaning and significance. Today, it's not hard to spot what this is in our culture. In a book entitled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer cites the French sociologist Jean Baudrillard, who has made the point that in the Western world, materialism has become the new dominant system of meaning. He argues that atheism hasn't replaced cultural Christianity, shopping has. Shopping is now the number one leisure activity in America, usurping the place previously held by religion. Amazon.com is the new temple. The visa statement is the new altar. Double-clicking is the new liturgy. Lifestyle bloggers are the priests and priestesses. Money is the new God. There's a show on Netflix called The Minimalists. They talk about how we spend so much time working so that we can buy so much and that even our non-work time is spent on screens, isolating us even when we're, when we're together. We are trying to fill our lives with stuff, and it isn't working. Stuff is contributing, one of the people on the show says, stuff is contributing to our discontent in so many different ways because it's taking the place of the things that actually do give us more happiness. Discontentment and anxiety are at all-time highs. We are neglecting the things that our soul, soul really needs, like relationship, community. Instead, we are looking to more stuff to give us an identity, to tell us who we are and that we are worthwhile, that we belong, and of course, it doesn't. Stuff can't do that for us. Instead, it weighs us down with the weight of our inadequacy and the fact that we don't actually fit in. 
One of the people on the show said, as I started slowly releasing things, I gained a sense of freedom. There is a sense of liberation that comes from freeing yourself from the endless pursuit of more stuff. The problem is, what are you going to replace it with? As history has shown, we are all searching for something or someone who will speak to our belonging and dignity. And time and again, we are confronted with the fact that we neither belong nor are dignified. The truth is that we were once, but we lost it. In the beginning, we enjoyed a wonderful, secure identity. There was perfect dignity enjoyed by humanity, perfect belonging, perfect purpose. When God created the first man and woman, they both enjoyed the dignity of bearing the image of God in the world together. They enjoyed perfect belonging. They walked with God. And as soon as the woman was created, they, the two became one and they joined together to create a family that would be one family to fill the earth. And they enjoyed clarity of purpose. They were entrusted, Adam and Eve, with the stewardship of creation, this cooperative ministry of filling and bringing order to the earth. They enjoyed this in freedom, the freedom for which God created them as a unified family with wonderful dignity, belonging, and purpose. But things did not last this way. When Satan presented uh, them with the opportunity to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, he held it up as even greater freedom for them. You can be like God. But when he presented them with this option that led to them turning away from God and towards what was right in their own eyes, when they ate the fruit, the goodness and harmony with which God had created them began to unravel and they lost their dignity, their belonging, and their purpose. They lost their dignity. They saw their nakedness and they tried to cover themselves in their shame with fig leaves. They lost their belonging. Rather than supporting one another, they turned on one another immediately, beginning to blame one another and work against one another. And they lost their sense of purpose. Rather than working together with God for the flourishing of all creation, instead they were cast out of the Garden of Eden and began to engage merely transactionally with the earth, expending all of their energy for just enough food to eat for myself. Their identity was broken. And through that broken identity came insecurity, pain, suffering, evil. The fall the story that I just shared, that, that fall into sin happened in Genesis chapter three, the third chapter of the Bible. And then Genesis chapter four, we see the downward spiral of the effects of sin in the world. Chapter four of the book of Genesis begins with the story of Cain, Adam and Eve's firstborn son who placed his trust, his identity in the work of his hands and was rejected by God and it destroyed him, leading him to kill his brother out of jealous shame. The end of Genesis chapter four, we come to a man named Lamech, and there's a scene of him boasting to his numerous wives about how his revenge is much more than Cain's. He said, a, a young man hit me and I killed him, boastfully making a name for himself, placing the weight of his identity on his violence. A few chapters later, we come to the story of the Tower of Babel, which is kind of this ultimate story of humanity trying to regain our lost identity. All mankind comes together around the technological advancement of they, they had invented bricks and mortar. And so all of humanity said, look at the work of our hands. We're going to use it. We're going to build a tower up to heaven, and we're really going to make a name for ourselves. 
over and over and over again, the pattern of human behavior coming out of the fall is repeated attempts to secure our lost identity and along with it, the dignity, belonging, and purpose for which we were created. But if you remember, if you're familiar with the story, even in the context of the curse, back in Genesis chapter three, God approached Adam and Eve and promised a deliverer, the offspring of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent and bring salvation to all humanity. Right after the story of the Tower of Babel, we're told who this seed would come from. God approaches a man named Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. It says this, Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you hear what God is saying to Abraham? Abraham, I will give you a new identity with dignity. I will make your name great. Abraham, I will give you belonging. You will become a great family, an enormous nation. And Abraham, I will give you great purpose. Your family will be a blessing to all of the nations of the earth. The identity, the, the, the dignity, the belonging, the purpose, for which God created humanity was restored, would be restored through this promise to Abraham. But, once, but, but again, it was just a promise. God promised this deliverance through the seed of the woman. Here, we learned that it would come through Abraham's family. And over the years, this promise was waiting to be fulfilled. The Old Testament people of God continued to look ahead to the fulfillment of this promise. Which brings us to our passage in Galatians that Britt read for us, in which the Apostle Paul writes about the restored unity that was secured and provided by Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of this promise given to Abraham. Let me read with that context. Let me read our passage. It's a short one for us once again. Genesis 3, starting in verse 20, or excuse me, Galatians 3, starting in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's three things that I want to point out for us here. Paul walks us through the process of history. He walks us through being heirs to being slaves to being sons. So first, heirs. In chapter 3, Galatians 3, verse 29, Paul calls all those who belong to Christ, who have come to faith in Jesus, heirs according to promise. This is the promise that God gave to Abraham of a new name, a new identity, a new dignity, a new purpose, a new family. And Paul explains what he means by heirs in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. He talks about what life is like for an heir before he comes into his inheritance. You may be familiar with the concept A child who stands to inherit his father's wealth doesn't enjoy most or sometimes any of it until he formally comes into it, comes into the inheritance at the date set by his dad. 
And that usually happens when he matures, when he becomes a man. And so as a boy, he basically lives the same lifestyle as the household servants. He plays around the estate with them. He hasn't yet come into his inheritance. He, he can't use it yet. It waits for him. Hasn't yet met, made a difference in his life, in the way that he lives, because he hasn't reached the age of maturity. That is, he can't handle the weight because he's not mature enough. He would just squander the wealth if he had control over it in his immaturity. This is what God's people have lived like before the incarnation of the Son of God, Paul is saying. They were heirs all along, but they had not yet come into their inheritance. The second thing Paul points to is slaves. In verse three of chapter four, Paul says that in this period of waiting to come into our inheritance, the experience of the people of God was not one of delightful bliss on a countryside estate. Instead, it was one of slavery to the elementary principles of the world. So in essence, the saints of the Old Testament lived like slaves, slaves to the law of Moses and its high demands. The word translated here, elementary principles, is notoriously complex to translate. Outside of the Bible, the Greek term could refer to six different things, from elementary ABCs to uh, cosmic elements like fire and water to angelic beings like demons and angels. The term calls back to the beginning when Satan enslaved Adam and Eve by tempting them to trade the freedom they had with God for the chains of slavery to sin, which twists and perverts even good things. The term elementary principles could refer to any number of things across the diversity of the human experience, whether you were a Jew or whether you were a Gentile. But it certainly at least refers to the Old Testament law. If you look at verse 5, Paul is talking about how we're delivered, redeemed from being under the law. So the question is, how did this good law become bad? Was the law itself bad? No. Paul clarifies that for us in the book of Romans. Instead, Satan used a good thing in the law to do a bad thing to God's people, to enslave them with it. Satan has been at work drawing people towards self-reliance, tempting people towards the life of saving themselves. And so Satan twisted the law into this project of perfectionistic law-keeping when the law itself was only meant to point people back to God and the promise of the Redeemer. You may be familiar with the story of Martin Luther. He's the 16th century monk who, a German monk who kicked off, basically, uh, sparked the Protestant Reformation. If you picture the young Martin Luther, if you're familiar with his story, before he was awakened to the power of the gospel, he was there in his cell, tortured late into the night, night after night, by the thought of all of the ways he had broken God's law and offended his holiness. Satan was using this good thing to enslave Luther, to keep him in shame, to keep him trying to hide himself in his sin, like Adam and Eve with the, figs leave, with the fig leaves of his own self-salvation efforts. But ultimately, God used this good thing through his word to drive Luther and his helplessness to the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, for salvation from the weight of the law to free him from its demands. So you see, ever since the fall, until the fulfillment of God's promise in Christ, the human experience, Paul is saying, is one of slavery. Every human being, 
from every tribe and tongue, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, is enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When sin entered the world, the fabric of the cosmos broke, even now to the most basic elementary principles, leading to the multiplication of indignity, of isolation, every man for himself, every woman for herself, to the point that even the good law of God was twisted for selfish gain and pride and judgment. But then third, finally, when the proper time arrived, God sent his son to turn slaves into sons. Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5 are some of the most glorious verses in the Bible. When the fullness of time had come, G.K. Chesterton uh, once put this into an excellent historical perspective about what this means historically. God had been preparing the world for this time. Greece provided an accessible language known throughout the Eastern world for the gospel to go out and be communicated to the masses. Rome provided law and roads for the gospel to go out from town to town in safety. The apostle Paul himself availed himself of the safety offered by being a Roman citizen. If Carthage had won the Punic Wars, things would have been very different and Rome would have not been at the center of geopolitical, uh, the, the ge geopolitical scene. And then Rome gave us the cross as punishment. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That second phrase, God sent forth his son. The sovereign initiative of God in our salvation is captured in these few words. Right? The cross was no accident. The cross wasn't a plan B for God. If Jesus' preaching doesn't work, then, it, then, then we'll use the cross as plan B. No, that was the plan all along. Christ's life, death, and resurrection was a mission of God to secure our salvation, to send forth. That's mission language. We were the passive ones. We were hunkered down in our sin, in rebellion, in darkness, depression, and death. God is the one who sent forth his son. The son, obedient to, to the father, came and gave his life willingness, excuse me, gave his life willingly for our sake. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. At last, we have the fulfillment of the first gospel promise in Genesis 3, that the salvation would come through the seed of the woman. And here, God's son became Mary's son. In order to save humanity, Jesus had to represent humanity so that he could bear the sins of humanity. Jesus was conceived by God through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was fully God's own son. Jesus was born of a woman, therefore he was fully a human son. He was fully man and fully God. As man, he is able to represent us, to die for us, and as God, he is able to save us. This is the great mystery of the ages that Paul refers to elsewhere. This is the paradox, the impossible paradox of this coming suffering servant and cosmic king that the, that the prophets had spoken of. It's now been made clear in Christ. How can one person be both? How can one person be both the suffering servant and the cosmic king of all creation? Here's how the God-man, Jesus Christ. As the theologian John Stott puts it, if Jesus had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. So Jesus was born of a woman. He was also born under the law. Jesus himself 
uh, he subjected himself willingly to the just demands of the law. As Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill him, fulfill them. Jesus kept the whole law perfectly in our place. There's a story that I've heard from, a, from Taylor Entz, who's pastor at Sojourn Galleria. Uh, one of his seminary professors would teach Sunday school at his church, and he'd kick off the Sunday school semester with the question, are we saved by works? And of course, they would answer no, instinctively. But that wasn't correct. The truth is we are saved by works. His, not ours. He not only took the curse of a lawbreaker for us in his death on the cross, but in his life, he lived as a perfect law keeper for our sake so that he could give us his righteousness in place of our unrighteousness. So he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Redemption, to redeem, is a marketplace word. The Greek word has two parts, ex, agorazo, from the agora. You've probably heard the word for market. From the market, you can see how this is a term that came to mean liberate or to free. A slave is placed on the auction block in the market to be bought by the highest bidder. And once that slave is redeemed, he's pulled off the market, from the market. But that is the life of slavery. The life of slavery is to be available to the highest bidder for the moment. Always up for purchase by the next highest bidder, never free. That is the life from which God redeems us at the price of his own son. There is no higher price to be paid. So God won the auction. At the price of his son's death, God redeems us, pulling us out of the hands of Satan, the great slave trader, and brings us into his home. This is the gospel. God has bought us with the blood of his own son, Jesus, so that, Paul continues in verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is really the crown jewel of Christian faith and life. Christ came to make us sons. You see, we often stop at redemption, but redemption is for the purpose of adoption. We are not just freed from slavery, as glorious as that is, but we are freed from slavery to be made sons. It is possible to, to achieve for ourselves moments of catharsis in this life, to experience moments of freedom, moments of relief that we can come to on our own. In that show, The Minimalists, on Netflix, you remember that, that one of the people on the show said, as I started slowly releasing things, I gained a sense of freedom. It's wonderful to experience moments of freedom like this. And for that example, it's not a bad thing to slow down on our consumption of stuff and more stuff. But in this freedom from stuff, as with any other kind of freedom, the question becomes, what are you freed to? If the answer to that question isn't something ultimate, something only found in the redemption offered by Jesus Christ, then the sad truth is that you will merely go from one form of slavery to another. You'll simply go from one form of slavery to another, from one slave master to another. But that's not so with Christ. Christ came to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. In Christ, we are adopted into a new family. The dignity, the belonging, and the purpose that was once lost in the garden 
has now been restored to humanity through Christ. And when Paul refers to adoption, which was relatively common in the ancient world, one of the questions they would have asked is, what kind of adoption? What kind of adoption are we talking about? Was this the kind of adoption that involved a father bringing in a needy child into his home for protection and security? That would have been wonderful. But it's more than that. This is the kind of adoption that comes with a father making someone one of his sons. This is the adoption as sons. This adoption brings in heirs, inheritors of the promise of God. Everyone who comes in, Paul is saying, gets this inheritance equally. Look back with me at verse 28 of Galatians chapter three. Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, this kind of equality that Paul gives here stands in marked contrast with the accepted and common patterns of privilege in the ancient world and in many places in the present world. Something that probably stands in the backdrop for the Apostle Paul here is an ancient Jewish prayer that I'm going to read for you that Jewish men were taught to pray. It reads like this. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a foreigner. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. The focus in that Jewish prayer was not at all on denigrating foreigners, slaves, and women. But instead, it was meant to express gratitude for the privileges afforded to free Jewish men in the ancient world. As one commentator put it, given the pervasive significance of such ethnic, social, and sexual barriers within both Jewish and Gentile culture, it is all the more remarkable to read Paul's sweeping declaration of ecclesial unity, unity within the church, and the spiritual equality that cuts across the hostile divide of such fundamental human differences. You see, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're slave or you're free, whether you're man or woman. You are an equal partaker of the grace of God and the full inheritance promised to God's children. Contrary to a world that divides people in just about every way imaginable, excuse me, imaginable, here in the church you have people of all stripes, all ethnicities, all backgrounds, all statuses, enjoying Christian fellowship, enjoying Christian baptism, coming to the table of communion, eating together. And what was happening in the church was remarkable. All of these categories were transcended in Christ. Distinctions aren't erased. That's clear. Men are still men. Women are still women. Jews are still Jews. Gentiles are still Gentiles. That's why Paul refers to himself as the minister, the apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter is the apostle to the Jews. Slaves and free people. Paul refers elsewhere to the fact that coming into the gospel means that you can continue in your earthly status and enjoy a heavenly reality. But each person is given a new primary identifier, an identifier that cuts across the grain of the world that divides and binds together in one. In the church, you have poor women ministering to rich men. You have enslaved people ministering, preaching the gospel to freed people. It's an amazing truth spoken into this ancient world, spoken even into the world today. We are equal partakers of the glorious truth of God that we are family 
we are brought into the family of God. And this sojourn is where our values begin. At the heart of the Christian gospel is this wonderful truth of redemption for the sake of our adoption into the family of God. And that's our first value, family. As beloved children of a heavenly father, the Bible clearly teaches us here in Galatians throughout the pages of the New Testament to regard one another as brothers and sisters, as members of one family. And this is more than merely theological. We wanna give tangible expression to our unity in this regard. One of the ways that we express this unity is life in community with one another in the life of a neighborhood parish. More than just smiling at each other when we see each other, we engage with one another's lives. We rejoice with one another and we mourn with one another. We eat together, we go to Astros games together, we watch each other's kids, we wake up earlier or stay up later than normal in order to meet with one another, to pray with one another, to study God's word together. We share financial burdens with one another, we pay one another's bills when budgets are tight. We help to cover the cost of an unforeseen medical expense or home repair or that unexpected flight to go to a funeral for a family member who died suddenly. We check on one another and ask when we see that someone is downcast. We forgive when asked and we keep on forgiving. The scriptures say that we are existentially, literally closer to one another in this room than to our unsaved biological brothers and sisters. And so we strive to outdo what we would do for our biological brothers and sisters to the people in our church, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we strive to make room at our table for others. We go and we beg and we compel those who are not yet at our table to come in because we once were outside and invited in. Another way that we give expression to this is leaning into unity across Sojourn Houston congregations. Just as we do in our neighborhood parishes with one another, we support one another as local congregations. We give of our time, we share our resources, we send members, even when the cost of doing so can be uncomfortably high. Our second value is local ministry. And this value flows very simply from our identity as family. Rather than being a family in name only, scattered across the face of the earth, healthy families share a home. Rather than being saved to a life lived in isolation, God adopts us into a family and families live in real places with real people. In an increasingly distanced, fractured world, one of our key values at Sojourn Houston is local ministry. As our world tends toward the remote, the gospel is inherently embodied. Rather than remaining in heaven and speaking from afar, Christ came among us to dwell with us. Likewise, we tangibly express our familial ministry together in an intensely local model of ministry. Sojourn Houston is a family of neighborhood congregations with defined geographies led by local elders comprised of local members who are meeting local needs whether spiritual or material. Local sojourn congregations are made up of neighborhood parishes with defined geographies led by local leaders comprised of local members who are meeting local needs, whether spiritual or material. Although sojourn Houston congregations share a common vision and ministry philosophy, each congregation will ultimately particularize, do things a little bit differently. 
for effectiveness in accordance with their ministry context. You've probably been to, if you've been to any of the other sojourns, you'll know that we all feel very different, even as we are one. On a congregational level, we express our gospel convictions in embodied life as who we are, where we are, with intentionality and purpose, rather than merely considering the truths of the gospel in our minds, rather than coming away from sermons, parish gatherings with nice ideas. We come away from the teachings of Jesus and then we look real people in their real eyes, speaking real words, and we engage with the people around us. Whether they're our brothers and sisters, whether they're our coworkers, our neighbors, our family members. We live, we draw near, we see and engage the people around us with the intentionality that Jesus modeled for us. And so my purpose this morning has been to introduce these first two values. Next week, we'll hear two more. And in two weeks, we'll hear the last one. I want to just make a brief comment on what values are as I close. Values are intended to be culture creators. Values are based on the identity given in Christ, but aimed at influencing our behavior. By taking our worldview from the realm of ideas to fleshing it out in the realm of our actual lived lives. A woman named Ruth Haley Barton, I was listening to a podcast, a woman named Ruth Haley Barton was speaking about leadership and she explained the difference between values and ideas. And she gave this example. She said, you may, as a Christian, if you're asked the question, do you value prayer? What's the answer? Yes, yes, uh, okay, good, good. Not a trick question. Um, but then she said, okay, you, you call that a value. How often do you do it? When do you do it? Where do you do it? And she said, so often the things that we think are values are actually just good ideas. She said, for it to be a value, it needs to make it onto the calendar. It needs to make it into our real lives. Values are what is. Good ideas are what could be. And as you consider our values of family and local ministry, as we walk through this series to look at our other three values, saturation, simplicity, and compassion. Sorry, I didn't say those at the beginning. Those are the other three. You may think, you know, Paul, that sounds great, but we're not seeing that. Those actually sound like good ideas rather than values. Hearing the teachings on family and unity in the early church would likely have been difficult for them too, because that clearly wasn't the case. As we wrestle, though, with putting flesh on our, on our identity in Christ as a family, seeking to minister locally for the sake of one another and our neighbors, just know that we're not going to get it right all the time. And that's okay. There will be times when we're doing well in one area and we're struggling in another area. And then there's times when we improve in that other area and we start to struggle in this first area. When this happens, our values are intended to be guiding principles to which we can call one another that we can strive together for and towards to be the kind of community we are trying to be together. These are bound to be difficult and they're bound to be messy. As we've said many times at Sojourn, the value for family, the word family is variously defined and it means something different to nearly every person in this room. But as we wrestle through what that means together, as we experience the discontentment with how we are currently expressing family, we get to look at one another and strive to live as the family that Jesus modeled for us with his disciples, the family modeled for us in the pages of the New Testament and the family that we dream of as we pray and we look at one another and seek to put flesh on these great ideas 
that we are given in the gospel. It's important to note that all of our values have their eyes on people. They're not merely ideas, concepts that we want you to ascribe to. All of our values have their eyes on people, family. I don't want you to just think about family. I want you to look around the room. Local ministry. I don't want you to just think about how awesome it is to eat local food. I want you to go and meet people who live right next door to you. All of our values have their eyes on people. They're all about people, about God's redemptive love for people through his people, Christ's body, the church. Values are for us as people in community and through us to the people around us. And people are messy, including you and me. But when we come to encounter Christ, we are given a new identity. We are restored to fullness of dignity. We are given real and perfect belonging once again. And we have been given a heavenly purpose to put flesh on together. And so as we fix our eyes on Jesus and how he lived as the perfect brother, as the perfect local minister, may he make us look more like him as we seek to put flesh on these values together at Sojourn Heights and Sojourn Houston. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of our adoption in Christ. Thank you for the beauty of redemption, of being freed from slavery. And thank you that you didn't stop there, but that your purpose in our redemption was adoption, to welcome us into your family. You were not content to merely pay the penalty and stay removed from us. You drew near to engage with us personally, and you're pleased to do so. Thank you for that truth. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would make us more a family than we already are, that you would give us an understanding of the beauty of focusing locally in our ministry to one another and to our neighbors around us, and that you would do so in a way that makes us look a little bit more like Jesus today than we did yesterday and tomorrow that we did today. We love you. We need you. Please fill us with your spirit so that we might not fall back into our fear and our slavery, but that we would be able to cry out to you, Abba, Father, with joy together as brothers and sisters, empowered for the work to which you've called us. So help us to put flesh on these bones, family and local ministry for your glory, for our good, and for the good of our neighbors. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.